Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a former banker, policy advisor turned comedian, Ishan Akbar. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello, nice to be here. It's great to have you, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, listen, the first question we always ask people when, they bring, when we bring them on the show is, how are you where you are? What's been your journey through life? How did you come to the point that, that you're at? At now? Uh, well, immediately it was by train, but <laughs> the whole thing... You're not the first person who's done that joke. <laughs> 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 Damn it! <laughs> Talk to me originally. You are the first comedian that's done that joke. That's true. There, there, well, there was done, that. It was done by economists before you. Yeah. Uh, and I read economics at university, so it's a consistent mode of behaviour, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, where, do I, where do I begin? I was born uh, in Whitechapel in East London. Uh, or as my family called it, Brown Mosque. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, uh, um, my mum came from a very wealthy Bangladeshi family. Mm -hmm. uh, my granddad actually helped write the constitution of Bangladesh and made it a secular constitution, making Bangladesh the only Muslim-majority country which has a secular constitution. Mm. So you can thank my granddad for that. Uh, but my dad came from the other side of the tracks, Pakistani immigrant, you know, had to make his way through life. Um, so her parents weren't happy about that, I imagine. Her parents, well, her, this was my mum's second marriage, so... Uh, <laughs> oh! <laughs> All right, so they were anyone, anyone! <laughs> Whatever, man. The first one messed up, it's Is fine, it? you go yeah. do, do your thing. Yeah. Um, was that quite controversial for a Muslim woman to get a divorce at that time? It was relatively controversial, but because my granddad was... He was quite woke for his time. He yeah. kind of understood the circumstances behind why that happened to yeah. my mum, and um, I'm writing a novel about the whole thing, actually, so that might come up later, but as to why that happened. But in any case, and why that's important to know is because that then had a big impact on my upbringing. My mum was a staunch Thatcherite and my dad was a trade union labourite. Mm. So I grew up with these two opposing views in the house, both identified as Muslim and gave me, uh, for all intents and purposes, quite a decent Muslim upbringing, although my mum went to a Roman Catholic private school in Bangladesh. So when I was six and I was beginning to show kind of signs of, I wouldn't say radicalization, but basically I didn't have, I had a few choice words about Jewish people at six years old, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't know that when we invited him on. I did. <laughs> yeah, did. But you know, I was six, I didn't really know what I was saying, I was just, yeah. you know. Uh, but you know, you were just motivated by the truth. <laughs> <laughs> he said it, not me, right? But I was just espousing the views that I might have heard in mosque or amongst my friends. And it was my mum who basically, well, first she beat me up when she heard it, and then she explained to me that, you know, it was a lottery of life that meant I was born into a Muslim family. If I was born in a Jewish family or a Christian family, I'd be saying that they're the best religions and whatever else. Mm. So, I mean, because of my mum, I had a bit of a liberal attitude towards faith anyway. Then I went to a Church of England private school, became the first Muslim choir boy. <laughs> Which is just, it was a whole mess of stuff going yeah. on. I was the poorest, fattest kid at the school. I was there on an academic scholarship. I was a complete misfit. And then with the other Muslim boys who were there, I think it was about four or five of them. Here I am singing hymns about Jesus being Lord. And so, you know, it was just, I was just a constant confusion to everyone. Um, all that said and done, during that time, I, I, I then went to university. While I was at university, I was a part-time Bollywood dance choreographer. 
I'm just sitting here trying not to be racist. I'm just stereotypes in many ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah I really did. Um, I mean, I call it choreography. It was just uh, waking up every day and just dancing, right? Yeah. Random people following them behind. Um, and after I graduated, I joined a bank and was a private banker. So I did wealth management for celebrities. Then a 2008 financial crisis. Uh, I was very easily expendable, so uh, was made redundant, then did a master's in global governance and public policy, worked in government for a bit where they sent me out to local authorities to give policy advice. But that was good. That was good. It was good, actually. It was at, it was at a time just around the coalition, um, and we did the census in 2011, and that was when there was a lot of stuff. My, my greatest achievement in that job was getting a Conservative MP to defect to UKIP. Douglas Carswell? No, Suzanne one. Evans. Oh, really? Oh, she was a con I didn't, don't even remember she was a Conservative. Yeah, really? she was a Tory at the beginning. And at the time, we were at Merton Council, and she was upset about the number of white people being reduced in Merton, and she thought this was like some sort of um, conspiracy by ethnic minority people to get rid of white people. Yeah. And all it was is just white people had more money and moved into Surrey. Mm. And also, as well, nobody wants to live in Morden. Precisely, no, I was a more than so. <clears throat> so that, and then during that time, I started writing for a few newspapers. So I wrote some opinion pieces for The Guardian and The Times. Started working in a few different places. Had my sights set on becoming a broadcast journalist. The producer of the show said, you're quite funny, you should try stand-up. That was four years ago. Started doing stand-up. A year later, I joined HSBC as a speechwriter, the CEO and comms advisor. And then a year after that, quit to do comedy full-time. Mm. Lovely. And now you're here. Now I'm here, doing trigonometry. Made it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, I'm just curious religion, in terms of religion. It sounds like, I mean, I, I don't want to stereotype, but I, when I think of Islam, I don't think of the most liberal kind of upbringing. What you're talking about, what your mum taught you, seems like a very liberal thing, right? Uh, so it was for me. So he, mm. I, I think for me what was difficult growing up was I was given a very liberal view of what Islam is, mm. but then I was surrounded by people who didn't share the same kind of views. So for example, one of my mom's closest friends growing up was a gay hairdresser, who I remember very distinctly in 1988. First time I met my dad, and he, he, uh, he had his sight sets on my dad, basically. And it was just very funny seeing yeah. him kind of sat next to my dad, and my dad kind of edging away, going, I don't know how to deal with this. And my mom just cracking up. Saying, yeah. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um, but then when I would go to mosque, um, from my Quranic teaching, the things they'd say about gay people, the things they'd say about the West, and the th you know, and certainly after 9-11, there was a real shift to the right, as I'd call it, within, within the mosque, um, which alienated me a bit more. Um, and it was curious to me, because even, my, for example, my dad's side of the family as well, they've got some very choice things to say about what we would consider to be quite liberal topics, LGBT community and all this kind of stuff. Um, even Jews, whatever it might be, and they're quite vocal about their displeasure with many things. Israel comes up, and you can well imagine what views are in most places um, about the existence of Israel. Um, so for me growing up, it was very difficult reconciling what I believed to be my community when I was outside of the house to the stuff my parents were saying to me. You know, my parents would pray and they would 
uh, identify themselves as Muslim. You know, my mum, who passed away four years ago, she was buried a Muslim and was given a, a Muslim burial. Um, and my dad would still identify as a Muslim. He doesn't drink, he doesn't um, eat bacon or any of that kind of stuff. I don't see him pray, but when he does get in the car, he'll say a little prayer <laughs> before he sets off and... Car and, and flight. That's car, car, car and flight. flight. Yeah, 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 that's how we... Uh, Mate, even I say a prayer when I get do, on. Do you? Oh, easy jet, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so car and flight, any kind of travelling, I see my dad doing a little prayer. But that was difficult for me. So I was a misfit in, in the mosque as well. Even mm. when I led the call to prayer in the mosque, I did it. And at the time, I believed in, in the goodness of it and the intention behind it. But actually, my version of Islam that I grew up with isn't the version of Islam that I think we see in the UK. Mm. And... I have a theory as to why this might be the case, and I think it's to do with the socioeconomic status of migrants who come to the UK and bring a conservative brand of that faith with them. Um, because most liberal attitudes in almost any faith group, but particularly in Islam, tended to be when the upper echelons of those societies. So the Ottomans would rule a Muslim empire, but actually would drink and have concubines and all this kind of stuff. Legends. Um, absolute <laughs> legends, right? Um, and even there's evidence to suggest that, you know, during the Islamic Enlightenment, which most people regard as being between the 8th and the 14th centuries, it was quite a long time in terms of scientific advances mm. and social advances. Well, they led the world in, in medicine and yeah. architecture, well. mass, everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when, when Islam came to be, it did this audacious thing of giving women rights to an inheritance and allowing women to, <clears throat> excuse me, divorce their husbands and all this kind of stuff. So it was quite progressive. But the people who, who were able to exercise those progressive behaviours tended to be in the upper echelons of society. Mm. And the ones who couldn't tend to be in the lower. And most migration, if you see anywhere, tends to come from people who are from lower socioeconomic groups. That's why they move. Um, there's loads of my family members who just haven't left Bangladesh because they've got 15 servants and they're <laughs> very happy. <laughs> we should move to Bangladesh. Mate. Maybe even you and I can afford a servant in Bangladesh. Mate, I wanted to Bangladesh just to be able to afford property. Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty much. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you talk about, uh, actually, the, what I was going to ask you, do you think it's also to do with the fact that if you're a minority, you have to work that much harder to kind of preserve your identity? I see it with the Russian community in this country. Loads of people who are not religious will go to church because it gives them a place where they can come to and be in a community. And as a result of that, they kind of become, not, you wouldn't say they're religious, but they're, they're yeah. you, they, you know, what they kind of get into that circle. Yeah, I think, I think absolutely that has a big part to play because obviously the mosque is going to be the place where you get advice about stuff, about how to survive in this country and all this. And by osmosis, you'll pick up some views, but also, and this is something I found having gone to being a brown kid in private school, having worked with, um, during my banking days, people at the very top end of British society. To survive, you have to sometimes, not necessarily agree with, but allow certain views to be expressed. And over time, my feeling is that people hear those views, you might not necessarily believe them, but it's much easier to be like, yeah, I, 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 I hate gays too, even if you might not. And a child or a nephew or someone might hear you saying that and they're like, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And those views just tend to permeate, permeate. So I think there's absolutely some, something in the fact that people have to stay close to their communities.
And how big a problem do you think these types of views are within the faith? Do you think they're a major problem or is it just a small subset of people or is it widely prevalent? I know it's a very difficult question. It's, it's, yeah, it's a difficult question. I think the first thing to say is, it, the reason it's difficult to say, answer that properly, is because to refer to Islam as one thing is actually quite complicated. It, I don't think calling Islam Islam is helpful because there are so many sects within Islam, more so than almost any other, I think, um, because the formation of Islam was in a part of the world where there were so many tribes. And the reason why when people say Islam means peace is because the word literally does translate to peace. And the reason it translates to peace is because when the Prophet Muhammad is said to have received his revelation, his whole intention was to encourage peace in the Arabian Peninsula. So there's 12 months in the um, Arabic calendar, three of which are just about truce, one of them being Ramadan, mm. where the idea is just don't fight. Um, and a central theme of the Prophet Muhammad's ide ideology was something called the Ummah, uh, which means community. And the Ummah included Christians, Jews, pagans, all this kind of stuff. And this is in the seventh century. But now, if you speak to people and ask them what the Ummah is, they'll say it's just Muslim. Um, and so for that reason, it becomes problematic to be able to give one homogenous view of what I think Islam or people who identify as Muslim would say. However, that said, I am willing to go out on a limb and say that in a generic view across all those tribes and people who identify themselves within the umbrella of Islam, they probably don't like the LGBT community. They don't approve of it. And that is, I think, problematic. For me, it's problematic, certainly because, uh, well... I thought you were going to come out. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, like, it's problematic because, because I'm... Hey, not gay. They're not in that gender. Oh, thank you. I, I, identify, I identify as 86% straight. That's how I... You, what, did you do your own sort of referendum with your body? Yeah, basically. No, he's I'll, straight during the weekdays. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it means. I was just like, how many, how many men night. does one have to kiss before they identify as gay? You've got to try it. I believe this. I believe. It. I mean, this is a tangent. You've got to. You've got to kiss I'm, a bloke in order to find I'm, out whether you're I'm gay. On, I'm on less than eight. I won't tell you the number, but I'm on less than eight and more than two. So you put six, basically. I'm not six. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> but you've got to try it in order yeah. to find out. You could disgust me. <laughs> <laughs> the rushing comes the out. The rushing here. comes out. Oh. Awful. Oh. Yeah. Well, you must be burned. <laughs> See, look at his very monochrome colours. Just <laughs> yeah. no, nothing from the rainbow there. Yeah. <laughs> Having said that, we did get a psychologist on. A very mm. prominent, notable psychologist. And uh, she was talking to me and directing her attention to me. And I thought, oh, right, she really likes me. No, it wasn't. She just thought Constantine was gay. She thought I was gay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A psychologist. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> you can just see through you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, you know, so back to your point, the question yeah. you asked earlier yeah, yeah, is yeah. that... Uh, you, you were talking about how people you, yeah, in the, the Muslim yeah, yeah. community uh, don't like gay yeah, people. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think that... That's probably fair to say. I think that well, there's, there's surveys. There were surveys of British Muslims, and I think more than fifty percent of British Muslims say that homosexuality should be illegal. Oh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all because it, it's curious to me because a lot of Muslim friends I have, a big part of their humour growing up that I've seen, erred on the side of uh, faux homosexuality. Yeah. So, and. I guess we're now in a place where faux homosexuality probably isn't that funny anymore because that, you know, when we were kids, we'd be oh, that's gay, this is gay, that's whatever. But I certainly remember a time growing up where 
Uh, can I swear on this podcast? Of course oh, you yeah, can. Sorry. It's um, a free speech podcast. Free, free speech podcast. Say whatever so, the fuck you want. So, so basically, you know, my Muslim friends would be like, oh, you kind of like that. I'm going to fuck you. <laughs> Hilarious. But then they are so vehemently opposed to the idea of someone literally doing that. Mm. And I remember when I was 12 years old, my... Um, you're going to like this story. So when I was 12 years old, uh, my Pakistani side of the family, there's a few cousins I have who are kind of MCs and rappers. Uh, and uh, I don't want to shock you, but MCing rapping is something I'm not very good at, right? <laughs> so we, <laughs> we went around to the house. Uh, my cousins were rapping, and they said, Ishan, why don't you rap to the beat? Now, I didn't have any raps. What I did have was my school song. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> From your private school. Yeah, yeah. which is fluent Latin. Yeah. Yep. Right. So to the beat, I dropped in pectore robur. Right? <laughs> they stopped and they said to me, What are you gay? What's wrong with you? Are you yeah. gay? And I remember at 12 saying, Well, what's wrong with being gay? Oh boy. The family got involved. Uncles were calling my dad saying, your son's gay. This is unbelievable. Let's get him to the mosque. Let's get the imam to sort him out. I was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> you know? But um, I saw firsthand just how mm. angry that particular idea became. Um, I saw firsthand after 9-11 how angry people are about the idea of the West whilst espousing those views in the West. And I always found that a bit curious as well, being like, hold on, you're telling me all this stuff in English, in a mosque in East London, having just driven your BMW here, complaining about how shit the West is, and Western foreign policy, and this, that, and the other. Your tax is going to fund those wars, which is an unfortunate reality for all of us. If it matters to you that much, go over there and sort it out. But people wouldn't like me saying that. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, it's exactly the same with Russians. It's exactly the same. I know so many people in the Russian community in this country who go on and on about how terrible Britain is. And I'm like, well, why don't you fuck off back to Russia? Then? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is... Yeah. But that's the it's, most British thing in the world, isn't it? Just to moan about something. Yeah, yeah I, I get that. No, I, guess, no, I, I guess, guess you get that. I, I do get that, but they're not coming from a British yeah, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You no, know, absolutely. The, the, it's the, like we had it all great in the Soviet Union. I'm like, well, why are you here then? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a lot of that stuff does happen. And yeah. look, I'm not saying that you can't criticise. Of course you can. Mm. Yeah. But for me, it seems to me that certainly the, the Muslims that I tend to interact with and the Muslims that I know their criticisms seem to be completely at odds with everything it takes to exist in a liberal-minded Western society. And that, to me, is where there becomes a problem. Because when people say to me, Islam is incompatible with living in the West, I end up sitting there thinking, well, I can see why people would say that. I can see why people would say that. By the same token, I don't think, you know, real liberalism, if people want to identify that way, is to accept that people are going to be different. Mm is to accept that there'll be Muslims who won't drink and for them not to be chastised for that. Um, but they are. Is to accept that... Yeah, wait, hold on, are they? 
No, of course I didn't. Yeah. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't drink. And, uh, and ever since I gave, I gave up drinking in 2011, this has been the single most isolating thing I've ever done in my life. Well, right. there you go. Ishan's come out as gay. Francis has come <laughs> out as a Muslim on this <laughs> podcast. It triggered us I've, I've got to come out as something now myself. Yeah. 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 No, but, but the reason I, I wasn't challenging okay, okay. The, the assumption, yeah. I was yeah. asking, would Muslims be chastised for not drinking. Yeah, and you know, because I think one common refrain that's made about Muslims is that they don't integrate. And when yeah. you ask someone, what does that mean? Mm. They'll say they stick to their own, and they can yeah. challenge that and say, well, everyone sticks to their own. Mm. You know, the Chipping Norton people are sticking to their own. The Exeter people you're going to see today are sticking to their own. They say, well, okay, they don't really come to us. And as you probe and you probe and you probe, what that basically means is there are some cultural things that we do in the UK that the Muslim community just aren't privy to, just aren't part, part, a part of. Mm. And I, I personally think that's fine. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to drink, don't drink. Mm. And put, we can talk about alcohol another time. I think alcohol is a ridiculous thing to be legal more so than marijuana, but anyway. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about that later on, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about yeah, it in, in a second. Great. But nevertheless, it's, uh, it, it's curious to me that um, there are so many views within Muslim households that are fundamentally at odds with so much about what we would consider to be Western liberal values. And in particular, I imagine the attitude, is it the attitude to women you're alluding to here as well? Uh, partly, although I think that's changing. Yeah. But also, the, the, the women thing is an interesting one because... I, I don't want to um, necessarily align a lot of the applications of what the Quran teaches uh, about women to um, an Islamic application necessarily because a lot of Muslim households across the world tend to have quite matriarchal paradigms, right? Mm. So women rule the roost in the house, um, women rule the roost in some communities, but it is, I would argue, this historical patriarchal attitude that has meant that women have been subjugated consistently uh, and in a way that to you and I in the West would seem uh, quite regressive um, in those particular communities. Um, like, you know, Saudi Arabia making, making, uh, making the effort to give women the right to drive, which is a risk they're willing to take. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously never seen my mum, <laughs> Just upload that to YouTube, mate. <laughs> Cancel now! That's, it. That's the call. Well, we've lost our one female fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Women are wonderful drivers. Yeah. Uh, um, so that's why they get cheaper insurance. Yeah. yeah. Well, they don't anymore. They're not allowed to, are they? Are yeah. they not? Yeah, they used to be. She was real. used to be like, yeah, discrimination. Yeah. You can't. Discrimination. Yeah. yeah, but it probably still, the actuaries probably make sure that women, anyway. Yeah. That's another thing. Um, but, yeah, some, some attitudes to women, uh, attitudes to the LGBT community, attitudes to um, certain Western ideologies or Western foreign policy, all of that stuff in some, sometimes makes me think, well, I can see why people want to say you're incompatible. Because compatibility, in a sense, you know, in the UK now, there are more uh, halal restaurants, there are more halal dessert bars and all this kind of stuff. Great, wonderful to have that provision. That's not also, that's not necessarily, you're still doing it within your own community. When you go to 
parts of Birmingham or Manchester is just you know, see a sea of brown faces on one street. And that's fine. That's just how communities are formed. But if you're in places like Exeter, um, as I was yesterday, Royal Tunbridge Wells, and you open the paper, and that's what you see, you're going to think to yourself, well, they don't want to be a part of us. And actually, to be fair, if you ask them, they'll probably say, we don't want to be a part with them. And if they're here, we might have to be forced to be to uh, associate with them. And we don't want that. And that's where these kind of schisms come, I think. Now, let's, uh, what I wanted to do is just drill down a little bit. Where do you think the intolerance to LBGT people comes from? LGBT. Yeah, LGBTQ. LGBTQIAPK. LGBTQIAPK. You said it wrong, you hate gay people. That's yeah. how it works. Yeah. 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 Where, where, where does it come from? Where, I mean, because I, I really, because uh, I went to I went to Catholic school, so you know, there's certain uh, passages in the Bible, you know, that some you know more extreme Christians use in order to justify their intolerance. But where does it come from within? Is it in the Quran itself? Is it yeah. explicit within the Quran? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's explicit in the Quran about homosexuality being a sin, and the Quran also is quite progressive in their uh, uh, displeasure with the homosexual community because it also specifically talks about same sex which the bible and the Torah doesn't because it, when it talks about gays it just assumes men, men. yes yeah uh, so that's interesting mm. go on go on <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're going to hate everyone hate everyone yeah. equally right that's, yeah. that's, that's that's the fair thing and i think it comes from the same place it's just it's just fear isn't it it's just this idea that um you know populations have to increase and for populations to increase you need heterosexual relationships mm. and uh, homosexual relationships are a barrier to that increase and particularly when you're a religion like Islam which is born in the middle of warfare so you're very already quite isolated mm. and the only way to expand or protect yourself is to have an expansive gr a population homosexuality is a complete barrier to that um, I don't personally think that there is um, there's more of a, a dislike for homosexuality from that perspective as opposed to an inherent idea of it just being wrong because, and this is perhaps my liberal-mindedness, all of us, I think, growing up, have some sort of challenge with our sexuality. We, I don't think there's anything as you're 100% straight, straight off out of the womb. You can't possibly know. Um, there are moments we, as a kid, six, seven, you don't know anything, you might see a bloke and be like, oh, he's good looking, oh, I'm feeling things, oh, that's, you know, whatever. Um, so I think it, it would be rid ridiculous to suggest that there's nobody in the Muslim community, even in the seventh or eighth centuries, who weren't gay. And it's because there were enough gay people for that to be a revelation that God felt was necessary to put to the Prophet Muhammad. There must have been enough gay people mm. for that. To have happened, you see what I mean? Totally. Yeah. So if there are enough gay people in the seventh century, there must have been enough gay, potentially, potentially gay people within the Muslim community. Uh, and then for them to be told by imams, don't be gay, because if you are the big man in the sky, you're going to be happy about it. Well, this is what I was going to say. This is like you talk about Islam, but uh, Orthodox Christianity, the people who really genuinely follow it and believe it, it's the same. Yeah. All this, all everything you've said so far applies equally to them. Yeah. The the hatred of Jews, uh, the subjugation of women, the you know I, I know a, a very religious guy in, in in Eastern Europe who I have to see regularly, who said to me that all gay people are pedophiles. 
Right. Okay. Uh, in his defense, he's, he is a priest, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so this is what I'm saying is it's, I don't think this is exclusive to Islam at all. Yeah, no, it isn't. But what I get the sense of is any religion whose adherents are really, really deeply committed to it will typically go much further in those things than a religion that's maybe become more liberalized, like, you know, ang ang Anglicism or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I've been thinking about this, which is, you know, Islam, the year in Islam is what, now 1448, I think, something like that. Um, it's a much so it's, younger religion. Yeah, it's a, it's a younger religion. It's still quite new. That said, you know, if you've had six centuries of enlightenment where you've really helped society, global society, move forward, I don't see why they should, shouldn't be liberal or, or be you know, slightly softer on, on particularly these kind of issues. Why Christianity has been able to get to a point where um, gay people can go into church and pray and I mean that said I don't think a gay person can necessarily go into church and be like hi guys I'm gay I'm about to pray <laughs> that's just oh, I'm really clever um, uh, because I don't I think people do want to hold that part of their identity close to them when they go to a place of uh, religious worship I think Islam is a long way away from accepting openly that gay or transgender people will come into the mosque and one or two liberal mosques are opening up. Mm. Like, you know, and, and this, is, this will give you an example of where these attitudes prevail. About a month ago, I received a message from a family friend of mine who is, uh, he's a dentist, uh, he's married, uh, he's got a daughter. So on the face of it, you know, uh, a, an intelligent bloke, you know, an intelligent bloke. He sent, us, sent me a message with a, a picture of this liberal mosque that they opened up in Germany that allows transgendered and gay people to pray. And his only quote to it was, a sign of the end of times. And I was like, well, why do you think that that's a sign of the end of times? Surely that's a sign of progress, a sign of the beginning of time. And he said, this isn't what Islam's about. There is, there is no way that this would work. And I said, okay, what if your daughter decided to be transgender? You know, what if she felt that she was transgender? And he goes, well, that's not my daughter then. And this is a guy who was born and raised in England, mm. is my age, is a dentist, and so obviously surrounds himself and will see people who are from different communities mm. um, and uh, has those views. Yeah. yeah. And I said to him, well, if that's the case, what you need to be doing is every time a customer, a patient comes in, find out their sexuality. If they're gay, don't accept their money. Because you can't, yeah. you can't do both. You can't say, I don't think you're allowed to be gay, but also I'll take the 150 pounds for a crown. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. Um, and he's a good example, and he and millions of others like him exist. They are born in the 80s, in the UK, have caught, been here in this wave of liberalism that we've seen, and yet are very steadfast in their views about things like this. But do you think the reason for that is fundamentally re religion is illogical? It's faith-based. You are asked to believe in something that there is no proof for. Yeah. So therefore, people's belief systems aren't founded in logic because it, it's illogical. I, I, you're absolutely right, and that's my feeling as well. But a lot of Muslims will turn around and say Islam is the most logical of all the faiths. And their defense for this is to say that... So Islam, beyond the actual revelation, 
doesn't have any miracles. <clears throat> Everything that happens, you know, the Prophet Muhammad is a 40-year-old bloke. He married someone who was, you know, 15, 16 years older than him, went through a couple of hours. He's just a normal guy who had this revelation. All the miracles that exist in the Quran were in the older books, the Bible and the Torah. Mm. Because of the Islamic Enlightenment, algebra, mathematics, hospitals, all this kind of stuff, they will say to you, well, Islam is very logical. Um, because Islam is such a way of life, the five times a day, all this stuff, they will find a logical reason for those rules to exist. But I think you're absolutely right that ultimately you have to have faith that praying five times a day is a logical thing to do. In, uh, when you're living in the UK and you have to work from out the hours of nine till five if, you, if that's how your life has panned out. Um, or not eating uh, when the sun is up uh, for Ramadan. Yeah, for Ramadan, you know, yeah. uh, that it's... And they'll say to you, well, okay, uh, it might be hard for us, but you know, they had to do it in the desert, you know, in the sixth and seventh and eighth centuries. And well, my argument is, well, in the sixth and seventh and eighth centuries, they didn't have jobs. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, they, yeah. they weren't sat in front of a computer and that didn't have Jane's birthday turning up with a cake for, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they absolutely have faith and often there's no reason to that. So uh, let me ask you this question. This is going to be this difficult question to ask and I don't particularly want to ask it, but I feel like but I you're have going to. to. Yeah, but I'm going to because I think it's important. See you later, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know how uh, during the Brexit referendum there was this whole thing every time uh, UKIP were accused of being racist, Nigel Farage would come out and he'd be like, "We are the only party who's got a, who are who've said publicly we're a non-racist party," and everybody would look at that and go, "Well, that that means you're probably racist." Yeah. Do you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? You know, you know where every time there's a terrorist attack and everyone comes out and goes, "Islam is a religion of peace." Yeah, I kind of feel it's a bit like there is a sense in me that you wouldn't constantly be saying it if there wasn't some kind of issue there. Do you know what I mean? I, okay, I, that's, a, that's a good question. It's actually a good question. I think part of the reason why a lot of Muslims in the Muslim community feel the need to do that when a terrorist attack happens is because the Muslim community is roundly criticised when a terrorist attack mm. happens. You know, and I, I like what you did there is you aligned... Islam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Islam so to, fucked, man. You're like Islam yeah. to UKIP there. Yeah, yeah. Can I just say, we're <laughs> definitely going to clip this. <laughs> it's going out on the internet. And I'm tagging Constantine. Yeah. And no, my name isn't going on Mate, it. if I get a fatwa, so are you. <laughs> yeah. You're getting one as well. All three uh, of us. Yeah, you and I just Islam and UKIP there, really putting me in the... <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, but you know what I'm saying, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I personally get... I, I don't think that Islam is particularly any different to any other religion. Maybe it's a younger religion. Maybe... People are more devout, and because of that, maybe because it was born of, of war, as you say, there is a more militaristic element to it. Mm -hmm. but, but it's just that the way we talk about it, it's almost like you can't point out that people of a certain religion do keep committing terrorist attacks. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and the thing is, is it's fair to say, and I, t I talk about this in my show. Mm. Um, yeah, we, you should have made that clear, because otherwise it just looks like we got a brown guy who <laughs> yeah, just started yeah, yeah, asking yeah. him about, about yeah. Islam for no reason. Yeah, yeah. You talk about religion Isn't in that my what show. Yeah. Yeah. So, is it, we're not... So in my Edinburgh show, uh, Prophet Like It's Hot, which I'm doing at the Soho Theatre. Great title, um, man. Thank you very much. I take the copy of the Quran on the stage, and mm. I talk about what the Quran says about certain things. And one of the things I talk about is terrorism. And you know, there is a very clear, distinct passage in the Quran which says that um, you must, with 
the might of the pen or the sword, basically get rid of infidels. And you mean you, mate? Okay. Now, this is a 7th century text, um, born of war, that required strength in numbers. And if there are people who, you know, people who don't um, support your ideology when you're in a small village, one person is dangerous because they could get the attention of another villager from another tribe and they'll come and kill your whole village. Okay? Mm. So for that time, it actually makes sense. Mm. To me, it makes sense that you'd want to protect your own. As barbaric as it seems, we're here in the 21st century. In the 7th century, life was completely different. Everybody was like that. Everybody century, was like yeah. that. So you're going to like, you, know, you need to do this. Now, it's fair to say that a lot of the terrorist attacks that we hear about, uh, the majority of which, majority of them have an Islamic element to them. Mm. I get really angry when a terrorist attack happens and people come out and say, this has nothing to do with Islam. Because you're like, well, no, hold on a minute. They're not reading the Bible. They are m Muslim followers. Even if they are extreme right-wing followers, they are still extreme right-wing followers of Islam. And they are con conducting these attacks. People then wanting to defend themselves and say, look, we're not part of this, harks back to the point that I made earlier about Islam being so big and the spectrum being so wide mm. that what the Taliban do and what Al-Qaeda do and what Al-Shabaab do, Boko Haram, all these people, what they do, of course you don't want to align yourself with because that is an extreme view. But I will say this, if you were to probe enough Muslims and... And I did this with the UKIP manifesto actually three years ago. I took a copy of the UKIP manifesto on stage, didn't announce it was, read out some of their manifesto pledges and said, give me a cheer if you agree with this, give me a cheer. And you'd be amazed at how many things people agreed with. People don't want to pay hospital parking charges. UKIP said, we don't want people to pay hospital parking charges, that kind of stuff. But if you took certain elements of say the Boko Haram manifesto and took it to Muslims and asked them some of the questions that uh, you, and all, you and I might find a bit, ooh, for example, we don't think the state of Israel should exist. Or we think homosexuality is a sin. I would argue that there would be enough Muslims who would agree with those statements. And that's where there becomes a problem. I'm by no means suggesting that any Muslim that I certainly know or have grown up with would condone any kind of terrorist attack. What I think they would condone or agree with is the underlying reasons why that attack may have occurred. Mm. That Western foreign policy is killing Muslims every single day, which may well be true. Uh, that uh, Islamophobia is so rife that attack is the best form of defense. Certain, those kind of sentiments, you see what I mean? Mm. So those kind of sentiments mm. may well be not entirely uncomfortable to a lot of Muslims who are the ones to say Islam is a religion of peace. Because as much as it is a religion of peace, that suggests that if Islam was a religion of peace, the opposite must be true, that there was enough, uh, whatever the opposite of peace is, strife, violence, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that there was enough of the opposite yeah. for you to have to have peace in the first place. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, and so to your point, I don't think it's because uh, they, um, they 
believe or agree with the idea of terrorism, but I do think that a lot of it is them feeling, one, feeling attacked, mm. because, look, there are millions of Muslims who've got nothing to do with what ISIS and all these people. I realised that when I listed out the terrorist organisation, I didn't actually mention ISIS at all. Yeah. It was the first time I mentioned them. Mm. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> 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 and I think, that, but that's key, right? The, right. Fact, the fact that mm. there, there are so many Muslim-based terrorist organisations yeah. mm. harks to the point that actually you can't homogenise this group. Mm. Uh, because there are Boko Haram people who look at Al Shabaab people and think they're pansies. Yeah. You know, there was a point that I think a couple of years ago, uh, or something, the Taliban had to distance themselves from ISIS. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember that to yeah. say this is extreme? What yeah. ISIS are doing are extreme. Yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is insane. Um, but also uh, heard that um, when ISIS were around uh, in Levant and Iraq. Um, the bins were always collected. ISIS had one. It's like the whole Hitler, <laughs> Hitler made the trains run. On yeah, time yeah, and, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. if you don't put your bins out, you don't, you'll get killed. You know. <laughs> but it's interesting to me just how familiar all this all this sounds to to Russians and Russia because Russians say the same shit about Stalin. Stalin. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, he killed fifty million people, but but there was order. Yeah, there was yeah. order. Yeah. You know, um, and in terms of the religion as well, like uh, the. The, you, remember, you remember the Charlie Hebdo attacks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th that same priest that I was telling you about, he was actually defending the Muslims who, who attacked them. He said they shouldn't be making fun of religion. And right. anyone who makes fun of religion should be killed. Well, there you go. It, and it's not just Islam. So I'm definitely not yeah. in any there, way suggesting that. It is, absolutely. Look, I've spoken to Muslim comedians mm. and asked them if, because of my show, mm. where I take the Quran on stage, mm. Mm. If someone was to hurt me, nay, kill me, mm. do you think they'd be justified in that attack, in doing that to me? Their non-response was telling. Whoa. Comedians. These are comedians. Muslim comedians yeah. essentially wow. understand why someone would hurt you. Yeah. Now, that Muslim... For taking a book on stage. Yeah. Now, those Muslim comedians, they by no means condone the act of killing or me being hurt. Yeah. But what they do understand and sympathise with is the reasons why someone might yeah, be They compelled. see where they're coming from, essentially. Yeah. And, and how much of this is uh, to do with the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq and everything that happened post 9-11? I'm about to say something that I think is going to get me in a lot of trouble. But, um, That's I what trigonometry is for. Yeah, but yeah. also I wouldn't be me if, if I didn't. Mm. I think... Certainly you and I, less, I know less so about you, but certainly you and I, I think it's fair to say that we're, we observe that oppression or f voicing your sense of oppression is sexy. Feeling oppressed and voicing that is sexy. There is a, 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 um, a strand within the Muslim community which I describe as the Yasser Arafat scarf-wearing sexy group of Muslims, where you talk about Israel, you talk about Palestine, you talk about Iraq, you talk about Afghanistan, you talk about Western foreign policy, and you talk about Islamophobia. And that group exists. They're not entirely wrong, but they're a very vocal minority of people 
who, in a sense, uh, operate in a way that wouldn't be, in my mind, too dissimilar from any other kind of extreme group, in the sense that we're constantly under attack, we are justified in feeling this stuff because we're constantly oppressed. We're justified in feeling this because I can't go through an airport without getting checked. I'm justified in feeling this because I can't um, get a job because my name is Muhammad Alalogi. I don't deny that those issues exist. My surname's Akbar. I've had enough problems. You know, I've gone through airports nice and easily, and I've also not gone through airports nice and easily. I've missed connecting flights because I'm being checked out. Um, I've also got to places earlier than I should have done. But uh, the Iraq-Afghanistan thing is terrible. But I'd argue we don't talk about the plight of the Rohingya Muslims in as much veracity as we do about Iraq and Afghanistan. That may be because we are Western British Muslims who are in this country and therefore are able to criticise the actions of our government, more so than the actions of the Burmese government. There are some people who are talking about the plight of the Uyghur Muslims in China who are in internment camps. But again, I don't see or think ISIS are flying off to Beijing. <laughs> Right? Mm. I don't see ISIS or Al-Shabaab. It's a shorter flight to Burma than it is to the UK or America. And that to me is curious. That why if those issues, Iraq and Afghanistan, are bigger than any other, first of all, why should they be? All Muslims around the world who are uh, being subjugated should have, there should be equality. Uh, a, a, a Chi Far East Asian or Burmese Muslim should, no be, should not be any lesser Muslim than an Iraqi or an Afghanistani Muslim. But to me, there seems to be like there's this hierarchy that exists, that we feel more pained about the plight of them. They might, again, the argument might come back, well, you can't you know, be sad about every single thing that goes and you've got to pick on the issues, uh, you know, ultimately, um, what happens in Iraq and Afghanistan has galvanized this anti-Muslim attitude that has now prevailed and gone to the Far East. That might be a, a defense that they'd give me, to which I'd say I call bullshit on that. Because what the Chinese, the Chinese don't give a toss about what the Americans are doing. Mm. They just don't want Uyghur Muslims in their country. And they're gonna put them in camps and they're gonna try and brainwash them out of it. This is happening on our watch, it's a horrible thing. Mm. But I don't see the Yasser Arafat scarf wearer complaining about that nearly as much as he might be about Iraq and Afghanistan. And then you'll say, you know, Wasim from Bradford, who wants to do a tube attack, is justified in doing so because he's so sad about what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And to me, I'm like, well, that's 15 years ago. What's the shit that we're dealing with now? And also it's ignoring history because bin Laden was funded by the CIA to fight my ancestors right, yeah, in yeah. Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, so, of course. And then the he, 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 he did 9-11 yeah basically biting the apparently hand that, <laughs> <laughs> biting the hand that fed him and actually let's not forget as well that he was an arsenal fan yeah was he yeah he was yeah, yeah he was he used to live he used to live um around arsenal yeah Maybe. not far away yeah grew up in sweden yeah well make of that what you will yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um so yeah i i think that's there's there's a kind of 
ignorance of history there as well. There is an ignorance of history, and also, it, of course, I, I get that. You can't, it's, we can't possibly as human beings be expected to contextualise absolutely everything when it comes to things that hurt us and upset us. What we did, what the British did in Iraq and Afghanistan, and Libya for that matter, and continue to do in Syria, is awful. Mm, and moronic too. Moronic, stupid, awful, and it pains me that my tax, which I'm doing, I'm doing the return soon, um, <laughs> that my tax money goes to that yeah. happening. Mm. But at the same time, uh, there, there is so much historical context within Syria, for example, that there is absolutely reason to believe that Bashar al-Assad is killing his own people. There's reason to, to believe that Colonel Gaddafi, who is one of my top three favorite dictators, by the way, <laughs> uh, that Gaddafi wasn't the greatest to a large swathe of the Libyan population. Mm. Um, and to me, the white man cannot possibly just dominate all the oppression as well. Hitler can't be the worst dictator of all. You know, brown Muslim people can also be terrible to their own people. And we should be able to criticize and be angry with them in the same kind of way. But I just don't think, I haven't seen evidence to suggest that people that I know uh, are as um, um, angry in their need for um, some sort of punishment for Bashar al-Assad as they are for Tony Blair. Mm. Because it's still part of that sexy um, parlance and sexy rhetoric around being this oppressed Muslim guy who wears a scarf and is constantly, I can't even grow a beard anymore because I'm a brown guy and all this stuff. Um, which I, I find it difficult to reconcile. I find it quite difficult anyway. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left. Let's talk about, um, you, you brought up the idea of oppression and kind of where, Yeah. Is, and it's not something that you and I have really discussed too much in the past, mm. but I'm just curious what you make of the modern conversation about the point that we've come to where I certainly feel like essentially we're judging each other by the color of our skin and our gender and our sexuality all the time now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I think that's fair to say. I think now more than ever, I feel like I've got to get a flagpole and say, well, this is my identity. It's this, it's this, it's this, 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 this. And it's exhausting. And I just think that because people have, I think part, part of it is actually to do with the loss of community, in the UK, the loss of community over the last 20 years, um, that people feel the need to align themselves to something. And they're getting more and more convoluted and more and more complicated. To me, it's no bone off my back if you want to identify as a non-binary, Muslim, transgender, whatever. That's your thing. I don't need to be hammered with it all the time. And also, I should be able to say, hey, do you know what? If I'm about to get down and dirty with a woman, and then I found out she used to have a penis, suddenly, or I'm about to get down and dirty with a woman and suddenly I see a penis, <laughs> I've got to rewire my brain. And just because I've got to do that rewiring doesn't mean that I'm some sort of transphobic freak. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And it, what's curious to me is these attitudes of this self-identification is a liberal one. It is a fundamentally liberal idea. But 
those very liberals criticise roundly anybody who has an opposite view. And to me, I don't understand what kind of liberalism we live in now, because for me, liberalism is say whatever the fuck you want, do whatever the fuck you want, be whoever the hell you want, I'll accept it for it, but acceptance doesn't mean I'm going to embrace everything. That's not what acceptance is. That's not what, how societies are formed and communities are formed. Because, my, you know, my, let's say parents, parents of a gay person, those parents may disagree with the idea of homosexuality fundamentally, but they'll accept that their son is gay. Mm. And that's two completely different things. Suddenly the dad's not like, well, okay, now my son's gay, I guess I better be gay too. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what acceptance is. And so it's the same idea that at the Mm. moment we've got to this point where just because somebody is transgender doesn't mean I have to kiss a man to prove that I'm I'm not a homophobe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do do you think partly this whole thing with identity, and and I've felt it a lot myself, is that if you've come from uh, your second generation immigrant, you've got a parent who's an immigrant, or like me, your mother's from one place, your father's from another. You, you've never really had an identity when you're in this country because yeah. you can nearly, never truly identify as British. Yeah. And you remember when I went to Venezuela, people would go to me, oh, do you see you as British Venezuelan? W- you know, what are you? And you always have that sort of conflict within you. Do you think maybe that stems from it? Maybe, but I don't know how many second-generation immigrants are actually like coming out as gay or transgender or whatever. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know, mm. and I can't possibly comment on that. I completely hear you, you know, I, not only do I have the complication of being a second-generation immigrant to South Asian parents, but South Asian parents, one of whom came from Pakistan, one yeah. of whom came from Bangladesh, two countries that in 1971 had a massive civil war that resulted in Bangladesh being born. So, and then I um, was raised in this country the way I was, in quite a middle-class way, sound the way I do, so when I go to Bangladesh, albeit speaking Bangladesh fluently, they're like, well, you're not. <laughs> you're not one of us, mate. Yeah, when I go to Pakistan, you're not one of us, you're okay. British. And when I'm here, you know, just last year in Shoreditch, I got called a Paki. And that was by my dad, no. <laughs> <laughs> but by a guy on the street. And it's just like, well, I, I don't know where I belong, but actually I can just choose where I feel like I belong, where I'm, wherever I'm comfortable. And I think a lot of people, that's what they're doing, is they're saying, I want to be... I want to take ownership of my own identity, and that's great. Mm. But me going to uh, an EDL meeting and forcing them to say, I'm British, that's not going to work. That's, they're not going to be like, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, you're right, just because you said it. <laughs> I now agree with you. Uh, and by the way, I'm not aligning the EDL with oh, whatever. So many caveats you've got to do now. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'm just tired of caveating. Yeah. So when yeah. I'm on stage, I just don't bother caveating. Yeah. If, if you want to make a judgment about the kind of person I am, because, uh, so for uh, I do this show called um, Hate and Life. Mm. Uh, and once I was doing it, so Hate and Life, if you don't know for the listeners, is basically audience submit like little categories or words, and you've got to say why you hate them. And the topic I got uh, was children with cancer. And in the context of that particular, it's quite a funny thing to come up. And I said, uh, I hate children with cancer because they're the weakest of all the children I fuck. (laughs) Off the cuff, it was quite funny and people laughed. But of course, people came up to me after being like, why are you condoning paedophilia? 
what, they really came at Hayden yeah. Live, a show yeah. that specifically warns people yeah. that yeah. comedians are there to say that, disgusting yeah. things. And, and that was a line that was crossed, and like, why are you condoning pedophilia? What kind of person are you? They made a value judgment on me as a comedian, by the way, mm. saying something that I knew would get a reaction and would hopefully be funny yeah. to at least five people in the audience. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> the five degenerates in the audience, right? <laughs> but they made a judgment on me, and this is the thing. As a comedian, I see it a lot. The, the, the moment you voice anything that doesn't fit within what I call this liberal tyranny, mm. within this liberal paradigm, you are chastised and ousted as a pariah, yeah. a social pariah. And that is not liberalism. Yeah. That is Stasi right-wing Nazi thinking at its core. But they would argue otherwise. They'd be like, no, well, no, you're... Accepting. You've hit the nail on the head, man. It's yeah. Ill liberal ideas being enforced through extreme liberalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. And that's why we started the show, man, because we, we've just, we're like, we can't pretend to think what we don't think anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just can't. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what you said, becoming pariah. It's exactly what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly what's happening. And it's going to happen to you now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I did this podcast. <laughs> it's good to have you on board. Uh, well, we, we've got to do the last question, we, haven't we? we, we do, do you want to deliver it, the last question? Yeah, absolutely, man. Listen, the, the last question we always ask is, what's the one thing that we're not talking about that we should be talking about? It can be absolutely anything. It could be something in the context of what we've been talking about. Uh, okay. Don't say your show, because we will plug yeah, that. Yeah, we will okay. plug <laughs> it at the end. Uh, <laughs> what, what aren't we talking about that we Correct. should as be society, talking about as, as a yeah. society? Um, Okay, um, I think the thing that we aren't talking about enough as a society that we should be talking about is um, the impact of tech in shaping societies and democracies around the world. Mm. Because the advent of the internet is what led to the growth, I would argue, of terrorist organizations like ISIS. Uh, and uh, Al-Qaeda because they were able to galvanize these people from parts around the world. And the fact that online is where communities are formed, the Twitterati, the liberal tyranny, all this stuff, those pockets are going to get stronger and stronger and more acute over time. And my feeling is that there needs to be some sort of global sort of agreement uh, for how society will be structured because for example, China having a closed internet, yet being quite possibly the most powerful nation on earth, is quite a curious situation. Um, and as more as we become more and more dependent on uh, online and tech, I think there could be some serious ramifications for global society and how they're structured. Excellent. Well, uh, Ishan, you're on Twitter at. I want Twitter at Ishan Akbar, but yep. people struggle to spell that, so you have to put in Michael Packintyre <laughs> to, to, to find me. I'm not fucking saying that. Uh, uh, Michael Packintyre on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, We're just going to cut that bit out. And just, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just, just me going. Yeah, just you looking at Ishan saying the words Michael Packintyre. Yeah, I think that would be a good clip. Uh, that certainly will trigger a few people. Yeah. Uh, you, your, your show, which is brilliant, is at the Soho Theatre in London, and it's 11th to the 13th of February. Yes, it never says that. Go and see it. It's absolutely brilliant. And if you can't catch that, just uh, check out Sean's website. And he's got all the dates of him doing different gigs, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's a very, very funny guy. He's played my comedy club. I've seen him many times. He's really, really great. So check him out. Follow him on Twitter. Read his Guardian article. Don't read it. Don't read the Guardian. <laughs> Don't read the Guardian ever. Because um, they can't. Um, <laughs> 
And as always, subscribe to us on YouTube. And uh, if you could subscribe to us on YouTube, on iTunes, on uh, iTunes. iTunes. <laughs> so he said the one I already said. Uh, iTunes. <laughs> iTunes. Uh, okay, nice, iTunes nice. is probably a thing, mate. So yeah. it's YouTube, it's iTunes. If you could leave us a review, we'd be insanely grateful. Um, uh, follow us uh, at TriggerPod on Twitter. Um, if you put tap the or click on the little bell key, it will uh, tell you when we've got new episodes being released. And most importantly, if you could leave a review on iTunes, and if not, just tell a mate. Spread the word. Uh, hatred needs to flourish. That's it. We'll see you again next week. See, see you later, guys. Bye. Bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.